Hey, it's Curious City reporter Monica Eng. Almost exactly a year ago, Curious City was part of a live show at the Goose Island Brewery to celebrate Chicago on what they call 312 Day. You know, March 12th, get it? As part of that event, I answered a question about the history of some of Chicago's music venues from singer-songwriter Andrew Bird. He got his start in Chicago, and you might recognize his music here. Half empty, half full, cup runneth over. It was the last live event I did that year, just days before the city shut down for the pandemic. So on this one-year anniversary of that show, when so many of us are longing to connect at a live venue again, we're going to give you a taste of what that show was like back at a time when we could still gather and celebrate the city together. Times I know we'll have again one day. That's all coming up. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so let me take you back almost exactly one year ago. I was at the Goose Island Brewery in Lincoln Park on stage in front of a crowd of about 60 people. Testing, testing, all right. This was pre-lockdown, but something called the coronavirus was starting to close in on the city, and I admit it felt weird to be there. Don't, if you're gonna cough, move out of the way and use your elbow. And it feels crazy in retrospect, but at the time, lots of us didn't fully understand how COVID worked and how bad things were gonna get. So we went on with the show. Um, this may be my last event and yours for a while, but let's have fun. The gist of the night was that we were gonna do a kind of celebrity Curious City question with musician Andrew Bird. He's famous for his violin-heavy folk pop and prodigious whistling, and he was curious about the history behind some of the venues he's played in Chicago. So I went through his list of venues, and it was long because he's played all over the city, and I focused in on just three, the Civic Opera House, the Metro, and the Hideout. Because they all have these fascinating backstories. So I'm going to answer his question live for you with a little slide presentation. I learned how to use PowerPoint. And then Andrew's going to play some songs, and everything's going to be great. And even if we don't have time for the whole show here, we can give you some of the tastiest bits from the event, along with the coolest facts I learned while reporting this question. So get yourself a drink, maybe grab a comfy chair, close your eyes, and imagine yourself back in your favorite club, where I know you are generously tipping the staff. Here we go. Please welcome to the stage, Andrew Bird. Welcome, Andrew. Hey. So, so what got you interested in some of these venues yeah. in the history? For most of my 20s, I was a local musician here in Chicago. I didn't really start touring nationally, internationally till a bit later. So it was like several shows a week with different bands playing 
first, like, when we were coming out of school at Northwestern, it was Morseland and Elbow Room and Beat Kitchen. I remember and that. And, you know, aspiring up the, the local music ladder to, you know, hopefully someday play the Metro. And that was kind of my universe. And uh, eventually worked up to playing the Civic Opera House, which was a big thrill. That was a while back still. But... um you know, I've heard anecdotes over the years, but I've never really done a deep dive. Well, like you're, you're going to yeah. get a deep dive, and you're going to get some <laughs> special secrets that not many people know. The first stop on our deep dive is the Metro, that venerable concert hall just north of Wrigley Field, where Andrew Bird once dreamed of performing. The Metro's been a hub of the Chicago music scene since the 80s, but our story starts way before that. Well, the building that is now home to Metro originally was built in, and opened in 1927. This is Joe Shanahan. He owns the Metro. And he says that back in the 20s, the building was a gathering place for Swedish immigrants, one of the biggest ethnic groups in the city at the time. It was known as the Ring Lodger Number no. 8. Hmm. And from what I understand, it was something they referred to as a Svithad meaning a Swedish fraternal club that gave services to the community. There were dozens of Svithads in Illinois, but this fraternal lodge was a little different because it was also a public money-making building. When it was built in 1927, it had a 1,200-seat auditorium, two meeting halls, a kitchen, dining room, eight stores, and an arcade that ran right through the building from Clark to Racine. I've also seen membership photos from the Svithod days. And man, I wish radio had pictures because these guys are dressed up like they're headed to Middle Earth. They're wearing wigs and wizard robes and they're packing swords, spears and scepters. So what were they doing in there? I talked to Arlene Lindell to find out. She's the secretary treasurer of one of the last remaining Svithods in the area. It was just a support system. There's a lot of... Um a meetings, they have an opening, they have a closing, we have a ritual song, we have an initiation of new members once a year. Um, it's ritual. Uh, we don't talk about our ritual, but no, it's nothing scary. Okay, nothing scary. But the Metro does have a spooky reputation. One ghost hunter called it the most haunted club in the city. Plus, there are stories of people dying there, including a young child. And finally, Joe told me that singer Liz Fair said she felt some pretty ghosty stuff there while rehearsing in the upper theater. So I asked him what he thought. Is the Metro haunted? Well, I'm not here to say it's true or not true. Uh, I leave that to each and every person. Have you ever seen a ghost? No. Okay. <laughs> all right, all right. Have all right. I heard things? I've heard things. Like? Just old building, old building stuff. But I think that this building has spirit, and I've always felt it's had spirit. And I want to say that that spirit is something that I don't take lightly, and I want to make sure to honor it. Okay, I figured I'd let those spirits rest and move on to the next venue I told Andrew about. It's the Lyric Opera House downtown on Wacker Drive. 
So to learn about the Lyric Opera House or the Civic Opera House, you can call it either one, I talked to a guy named Drew Smith, who is kind of their historian there. Yes, so the Lyric Opera House was originally called the Civic Opera House and was built in 1929. It was originally the idea of a gentleman named Samuel Insull, who is kind of a... uh, populist uh, utility magnate, and his nickname was actually the Prince of Electricity. He was this big opera fan, and he wanted to steal the opera away from the auditorium theater. Have you ever played the auditorium? Yeah, it's actually one of my favorite sounding words. All right, well, he didn't like it, and he wanted everyone to go to this new one. So he um, he hired some architects... And they went all around the world to research opera houses, but come back to Chicago and build something that was wholly unique to this city. And what they came up with was the Civic Opera House. The Opera House building is a huge limestone Art Deco skyscraper with a 45-story office tower and two wings. It kind of looks like a big armchair. Now, the history of this place is pretty well documented, but there are also a bunch of super fun rumors about it. My favorite is that it was built to look like a throne with its back to City Hall, the Auditorium Theater, and New York, because the Prince of Electricity was supposed to be mad at all of them for not respecting his singer-girlfriend. I love the rumors and I love the stories, but most of them are false, including that one. The actuality is much simpler that it was just architecture code, and that is how the building had to be structured to have setbacks so it wasn't casting too much shadow on the streets below before things like streetlights were commonplace. After forgiving him for ruining my favorite 20th century architectural gossip, I asked Drew if the Lyric is a good place for violin playing, whistling performers, like, say, Andrew Bird. And I learned something fascinating. This opera house is amazing for people who whistle on stage. So because this opera house was an opera house first and foremost, it is pretty much acoustically perfect. So in opera, singers, the orchestra, no one is using microphones. So the space itself is built for acoustic sound. So you can have a normal conversation on stage with someone in the upper balcony if you project just a little bit. But oftentimes you can hear normal conversation, even from the very back seat, which is about half a city block away from the stage. And Andrew told me the sheer size of the opera house, it made a big impression on him when he first performed there. The audience is so far away that you feel a little disconnected. The first show, I played two nights there, and the first show I got, I, got, I was trying so hard to exert the energy into the room to kind of connect with the audience that I, uh, on fake palindromes, I, towards the end of the song, I kind of thrust my, the violin up in the air like this. But I was standing on the, the cable, and it kind of snapped out of my hand and slammed against the floor and broke into two pieces. Very rock and roll. Yeah. There was, you know, an audible gasp in the room and then total silence. And then I just like, okay, the worst has happened. So I just picked up a guitar and played the last song. Because like they say, the show must go on. And it will after a quick break. When we return, Andrew and I head to the third and final stop on our deep dive of Chicago music venues. See you in a minute.
Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience. I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I'd never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. So the last venue on our list is The Hideout. It's a little neighborhood bar with a small stage in the back, tucked away in a historically industrial area of Lincoln Park. To find out more about The Hideout's history, I sat down with co-owners Katie and Tim Tutton. And with these two, sometimes it's better to just let them talk. Okay. And that's another continuity. Starting in the beginning. This building was built definitely before 1871. It's a balloon frame house. It was literally built by working class people, all right? It was likely built by Irish immigrant workers, workers who needed simple housing close to the huge steel mill in the area. They believed that it was a 48-hour house, which meant that working people that worked on Fridays and Saturdays, they would collect all the wood for a couple of weeks, they'd get all the material together, and then, usually on a Saturday morning early, they would frame it out, pop it up, and roof it by Sunday night. So they okay? build it and in 48 hours. And that, those are houses that were on land that they actually didn't own. And those houses would be able to stay there until the company or the police or whatever came around at some point and said, you got to move this house. And around the turn of the century, that's what happened. At the time, an Irish widow named Anastasia Meany owned the house. So she got together some money, bought a piece of land across the street, and enlisted the help of some friends. And they literally picked up the hideout and carried it across the street. And after Meany moved the house to its permanent home, she turned the building into a revenue stream. She started renting it out, and it became basically listed as a boarding house. But by 1910, it occurs that... um, There was a fight out in front of the bar, which was a fight after a funeral in Irish Wake. So that indicates to us that without a doubt it was a public house. In other words, it was a bar. Yeah, so So it was basically a boarding house that had now become a party house, all right? And that party went from 1910 to 1934, which means it went through the Roaring Twenties and the Prohibition. Back then, mobsters controlled the flow of alcohol, and the hideout was in gang territory. First under the Irish Northside Gang, then the Southside Chicago Outfit took over. And you can see evidence of all this gang activity in the building's design. The front door when you come in was the same size door that it is now, but then the second door that you come in was only 20 inches wide, okay? And it was low. The really low. Really low. And that is because back in the day, you never wanted two gangsters to rush into a bar. You wanted only, it had to be small enough for one guy, and even small enough so a big guy couldn't get in fast. The hideout had several owners over the years, but it pretty much always catered to working class people. In the 80s, Tim and Katie bought the bar with two friends and kept it going as a neighborhood institution. Eventually, they'd build a stage in the back room and host some of Chicago's biggest names. Like, for instance, Andrew Burt. Hideout became our home base. Like, I actually lived upstairs. When I, I moved out to the country and was living in a barn in western Illinois, and I had a studio out there, and I didn't, couldn't afford two places, so I slept upstairs with Thundar the cat. 
It's pretty small, and it was it was not not that it's that nice now, but it was it was not nice then. Uh, but they would have to lock me in, which I think was pretty illegal to do. Oh. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Today, do you guys know what's going to happen around the hideout? Do you know what what big mega development is happening? Lincoln Yards. So these guys, yeah, they're not happy about it either. Um, and Lincoln Yards is a huge and controversial development project that includes houses and stores and essentially creates a new neighborhood along the north branch of the Chicago River. Katie and Tim were some of the city's most vocal opponents during the hearings on the project. And today, they vow to keep their tiny 150-year-old building going, even when they're surrounded by skyscrapers. Here's Tim. Chicago is about continuity and connection. It is about neighborhoods. That's what we are. That's what we started as, right? This building was built, a hideout, right? Family and friends built it. They sustained it through the wars and the depression and everything. And the beauty of the, of the modern era, of the 21st century, is that our small owner-operated clubs are authentic, but instead of being discriminatory, we're inclusive. So now you get Grandpa's Bar without the racism, without, no, without the sexism. Now, the authentic old spaces are really opened up and we all get to enjoy them. And that's really what people want. It's like neighborhood places that are small and intimate and owner-operated and creative, but that are also inclusive. Of course, these days, lots of people aren't going to bars or going out to see live music like they used to, no matter how authentic or inclusive the venue might be. And I don't know about you, but I miss all that stuff a lot. So while we're still stuck at home, I thought I'd leave you with the final act of our evening with Andrew Bird. All right. So, Andrew, would you like to start playing some music? Sure. Um... He played a few songs for us that night, and he closed out the set with a number called Don't Be Scared. So until the day when we're all able to gather again in a neighborhood bar, a concert hall, or a decadent opera house, I hope this helps.
Thanks to Do312 Chicago for the audio from this event. And thanks to Swedish-American archivist Andy Meyer for help with research. Curious City is produced by Stephen Jackson and Joe Dussault and edited by Alexandra Solomon. Our digital producer is Maggie Sivet and our multimedia intern is Natalie Dahlia. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation. I'm Monica A. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org curious. Thank you.